right, good morning. March Madness, we all still friends here? Everybody good? All right, well, very good. Well, get your Bibles out. That ought to unify us, if nothing else will. Uh, get your Bibles out and open them to Romans chapter 4. And if you've got your Romans journal, which I hope that you do, it's on page 34. Um, just out of curiosity, how many of you have your Romans journal with you this morning? Why don't you lift it up all loud and proud here? Make our production team feel like they didn't waste their money. Uh, you can put it down. Uh, how many of you don't have your Romans journal with you, but you're like, hey, I know where it is. I'm using it. I just forgot to bring it this week. Why don't you put your hand up, testify. All right, good. Uh, you still get a zero for today. Day, but it, it does make our production team feel better. Page 34, Romans chapter four. Um, as you're turning there, how many of you, how many of you loved high school biology class? Why don't you put your hand up for a minute? Um, I think it was a rite of passage for me in either middle school biology or maybe high school biology. I can't remember which one it was, but that first time that you got to do a frog dissection. Do you remember that day? I, I feel like that was a game changing moment because I feel like so many things in the world look different to me after that moment because Prior to that, it'd just been this frog hopping around. And now it's like this complex organism with all these inner working parts. Uh, I was telling this to one of our pastors here. He said, man, in my um, school, we got to do a fetal pig. So I was like, I don't know what kind of crazy expensive private school you went to, but we just had the, the planet Santa frog. One of our other pastors who was raised more in the country said, we got to do a cat. Uh, so I was like, I don't know what's going on there, but uh, he was able to confirm to me that the cat has no soul, no heart, nothing in there but pure evil. Okay, so he was able to check that out. Um, well, I share that. I share that because Romans 4 is Paul's, the Apostle Paul's dissection of faith. Paul's going to lay it out on the table and he's going to show you what all the different parts of it look like. You see, throughout the whole book of Romans, you probably have noticed that faith plays this crucial role in salvation. And so Paul has said things like Romans 1.16, what I told you was the key verse in the whole book. The gospel is the power of God to everybody that believes. That word believe is the same word in Greek for faith. Faith is the means by which the power of God comes into us. Or last week, we did chapter 3, verse 22, or a couple weeks ago, 3, verse 22, when Paul said the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, to all who show faith. So the question is, what is faith exactly, right? What is faith? You know, if you ask different kinds of Christians, you're likely to get three different answers. For example, if you ask a Roman Catholic, if you were to ask a professor at Duke Divinity School, and you were to ask Billy Graham, what is the faith that Paul is referring to when he says the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ, you're very likely to get three different answers from those three different people. Well, thankfully, the apostle Paul tells us exactly what he means by faith, and he does that in Romans 4. Romans 4 is the apostle Paul's analysis of what the faith that saves us really is. He's going to lay it out on the table, so to speak, and he's going he's to dissect it for you. Honestly, you Y'all, this might be my favorite chapter, not just in Romans, it might be, I think it is my favorite chapter in the entire Bible. And that is for very personal reasons to me, because it was through a in-depth study of this chapter when I was a freshman in college that I finally understood how I could know for sure that I was gonna go to heaven when I died. Uh, some of you have heard me, if you've been around here, you probably heard me talk about um, the struggle, long struggle I had with assurance of salvation for years. I doubted my salvation. I, I knew, I knew that you were saved by faith. I'd known that since I was a kid, I've been taught that. But what exactly was that faith and what did it look like? Was it a prayer that you prayed? And if so, had I prayed the prayer right? Was it feelings of repentance? If so, how strong did those feelings of repentance need to be? Had I been sorry enough for my sin? Was it commitment to Jesus? Well, if it was commitment to Jesus, how committed did you have to be to be regarded as having enough commitment to be accepted by God? The end result I've told you is that I prayed the sinner's prayer over and over and over. I told you that if there's a Guinness book of world's records for how many times a single human being can pray the sinner's prayer, there is no question in my mind that I would hold that record. Some of you have been like, well, I prayed it a lot too. You ain't got game compared to me. I'm gonna go ahead and tell you that right now. Um, by the time I was 19 years old, I probably prayed that sinner's prayer probably 5,000 times. That's not even an exaggeration. Every time my church gave an invitation, I got saved uh, during that window. I mean, I single-handedly fulfilled our church's conversion goal by myself. They're like, like, we had 300 professions of faith last year. Yeah, but 240 of them were JD. Um, I've been saved in youth camps all over the nation. Um, I have been saved, I think in every denomination um, in North America has a JD Greer salvation on the record. And then I would follow that up with baptism because you wanna make sure that you're baptized after you're saved. And so I got baptized. I mean, it was like, I could just feel the pastor every time he stood up and gave an invitation for baptism. He'd be like, anybody else 
except for JD, want to get baptized today. I had my own locker in the baptismal changing area. Uh, that, that part's a joke. But point is, I, I did it a lot. I went through this a lot because I just wanted to know, like, how do you know for sure that you have the faith that saves? And what is saving faith? And how can you know that you have it? Well, that's the question Paul's going to answer in Romans 4. And he's going to try to answer that by looking at the life of one of the most important figures that we have in the Bible, and that is Abraham. Paul's choice of Abraham to demonstrate what saving faith looks like is intentional because Jewish people considered Abraham to be the father of their faith, right? I mean, we still think that today, right? I mean, you know the song, right? Right, fill in the bank. Father Abraham. Hey, you see, right? Many sons had. That's right. I'm one of them. So are you. So let's all praise the Lord. It's back when you did uh, yoga and calisthenics and worship all together at once. I have requested that our worship team come up after this is over at all campuses and lead you in a rousing course of Father Abraham. And they said no. So, um, but I'm going to pray they have a change of heart. So Paul's going to demonstrate that Abraham, Father Abraham was justified by faith. And the idea here is if Abraham, who is the father of our faith, the father specifically of the Jewish faith, that he was justified by faith, well, you should expect that you will be justified also. Remember, part of Paul's audience here are Jewish people who are struggling with what Paul is teaching about the gospel and they feel like he's teaching something new. So Paul's trying to say, nope, Father Abraham believed this as well. By the way, a lot of times I get asked the question, they're like, Pastor, how did people in the Old Testament get to heaven? They're like, I don't see any altar calls. I don't see any sinner's prayer. I don't see people asking Jesus into their heart or getting baptized. So how do people in the Old Testament get saved? By the way, if you're new to Christianity, saved is just a shorthand term for how you know for sure you're going to heaven. Uh, Usually if you grew up in a country church, you got to say it with five syllables, saved. But all it means, all it means is I know for sure that I'm going to heaven. If you've ever asked that question, how did people in the Old Testament get saved? Romans 4 is your answer. Paul's going to frame this whole chapter around three very important questions. Here they are. Question number one, he's going to ask, how was Abraham saved? Question number two, very important. You think it's not, but it is. When was Abraham saved? Question number three is, what were the elements of Abraham's saving faith? Okay. All right. Let's dive right in. Romans chapter four. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh is found? Because if Abraham were justified by works, he's got something to boast about but not before God. No, not before God. For what does the scripture say? You notice the quotation marks because he is quoting Genesis 15, 6. Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. So how was Abraham saved? Genesis 15, 6 tells us it was by faith. Abraham believed God's promise that he would bring salvation to the world through one of his sons. And that was credited to Abraham as righteousness. When he believed that God would make of him a great nation like he had promised, and from his descendants, one of them would come that would bring salvation to all the different nations of the world. When he believed that, it was credited to Abraham for righteousness. Verses four and five show us the inner logic of faith. Verse four. Now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift. Pay is given as something that is owed. That is the premise behind every single job that you have. You perform a certain task and then you are paid for that task. When the boss writes you that paycheck, you don't go up to him or her and say, wow, this is so generous. You were so awesome. Thank you for thinking of me. You were so thoughtful. No, your pay is what you are owed for working. You do the work, you get the payment. That is how many people, Paul says, approach God. They do good things and they think, therefore, God will pay me. He will reward me with acceptance into heaven. Most religion, I've told you, works off of this premise. I obey, I obey, therefore, I'm accepted. If I obey well enough, if I obey often enough, if I'm good enough, then God will reward me with acceptance. He gives me acceptance as a payment for my obedience. The problem with that, Paul says, is that when you do good works to earn salvation from God, well, they're not really motivated by a love for God. If anything, they're motivated out of a love for yourself, right? I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? If I am nice to you as a way of making God or trying to get God to let me into heaven, it's not really you I care about, it's me, right? It's, it's, it's that dilemma you have when you're at the... Um, Ever had this happen? You're at a coffee shop and they got a little tip jar. The coffee shop tips welcome, thanks a latte, or you know something like that. And and uh, you're about ready to put your tip in, but right when you get ready to do it, the barista turns around. Right? You ever had this happen? And you're like, oh, but if I put it in and they don't see it, I don't get credit for it. 
right? So you're like, what do I do here? Because it, especially if you've already dropped it in, you're like, do I wait for them to turn around and then put another one in? That's a double tip. That's kind of excessive. Um, but, you know, if I, maybe I should reach in and pull it out. You ever thought that? I pull it out and wait till they turn around and then drop it in and smile at them and say, you know. Um, but then what if I, they turn around right when I'm reaching my hand in, it looks like I'm stealing. That's not going to work out well. It's just a real dilemma. Am I right or am I right? Okay. But the point is in that moment, you're not really caring about being generous to the barista or the barrister. What you care about is you care about them thinking good about you. It's not really love for them that motivates you. It's love for yourself. And Paul says, when you're working and doing good works to earn acceptance by God, it's not really God you care about. It is yourself. So the gospel, he says, works according to a different premise. And that premise is this, verse five, but to the one who does not work, but instead believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous. Well, that person's faith, like Abraham's, is going to be credited for righteousness. Now, what does that phrase does not work mean? I mean, it can't mean that Christians don't do good works, right? Because the whole New Testament is filled with stories of followers of Jesus doing good works. No, what it means is that you no longer do good works as a means of obtaining salvation. When it comes to establishing your rightness before God, instead of trying to work for that and experiencing that as a reward, instead of that, you believe on him who declares the ungodly to be unrighteous. In other words, you believe that God accomplished what God said he accomplished when he sent Jesus to die in your sins for your, in your place. You believe that he was paying your sin debt in full. When you believe that and you claim it as your own, his righteousness is credited to you. It is pictured in that Jewish father I've told you about who brings the lamb for sacrifice once a year to the Jewish temple, lays it on the altar. And as the priest cuts the throat of the lamb, the father lays his hand on the head of the lamb and confesses his family's sins. What is happening is symbolically, the guilt of that family's sins is being transferred to the lamb. And symbolically, that lamb's innocence is being credited back to the family. In the same way, Paul says, when you believe that what Jesus did, when he, that Jesus did what he said he did when he died on the cross, and you claim that as yours, credit for his life and death gets put into your account, and credit for your sin gets put into his account. By the way, that word credited, that word credited is the most important word in Romans chapter four. Romans chapter four, in Greek, it is the word logizomai. If you're a Greek nerd, wanna write things down, logizomai. It is a banking term, a banking term. It means something is put into your account. Bankers in those days use that term. Uh, I, my son has a bank account with a hundred and about nine-year-old son has a bank account with $106 in it. That's his savings account. Okay, if I were to find out that, you know, like next, next week I was gonna die or something and I wanted to transfer my assets to my son. So I go down to the bank and I'm like, hey, I want you to take all my checking, all my savings. I want you to take everything I own and I want you to put it into my son's account. That banker, that banker would take all my assets and would transfer it to my son's. He or she would logizomai his account with all of my assets. And suddenly my son's bank account would go from $106 to like 350. Now just all in one moment, okay? Right, that is logizomai, it's a banking term. It means credit. Note here, by the way, that faith is the instrument that, that gains that credit. Faith is not just believing in God, it's not just believing in Jesus in general, believing he's out there, having warm and fuzzy feelings toward him. Specifically, you are believing that he accomplished something for you that he said he accomplished for you, paying your sin debt, and then leaning your weight on that. I, I, I've heard it called a trust transfer. You no longer depend on what you've done, your work, to get you to heaven. You start depending on, on what he's done. It's not that you stop working, it's that you start trusting in that. You stop trusting in that as your means of earning your way before God. I, I've compared it before to sitting down in a chair. You know, it's like when you have a chair, up until the point you sit in the chair, you are, are depending on your legs to hold you upright. But at the moment you choose to sit down, you transfer your trust off of your legs onto the chair. And now the weight of your body is sitting on the chair. It's not like your legs have stopped working. It's not like they disappeared. It's just that you transferred your trust of what is going to keep you off the ground. You transferred it from your legs to your chair. In the same way, when you become a Christian, you transfer trust of what is gonna get you acceptance before God. You transfer that off of your own goodness and you transfer it onto Jesus's finished work. When I ask people that question, when I ask them that infamous question, if you died tonight, right? By the way, this is what I mean. When you, when you get asked that question, 
That infamous question that Christians love to ask, if you died tonight, by the way, nobody knows why we only think you'll die at night, but that's just what we assume. If you died tonight, not tomorrow, but tonight, and God were to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would your response be? If you understand what Paul is saying here, you won't answer with anything about you at all. You'll answer entirely because of what Jesus has done, because that's what you're trusting in. Now, I will tell you that when I ask people that question here, especially in the Bible Belt in the South, I usually hear one of three answers. I'm gonna go ahead and just give them to you because I imagine some of you, if I asked you, you might say the same thing. So let's just go ahead and just talk about it, all right? Um, letter A, I hear they'll, they'll be like, well, why should, why should God let me to heaven? Because I tried to be a good Christian. I tried my best. I was super sincere. Or they'll say, letter B, they'll say, I believe in God and I try to do his will. All right? Or they'll say, letter C, I believe in God or maybe believe in Jesus with all my heart. Now, here's why all three of these answers, all three are wrong. Um, they're all essentially salvation by works. Watch. I tried my best to be a good Christian. That's just pure T, salvation by works. I'm hoping that in the scale, I did more good things and bad things. God going to let me into heaven because I was sincere. Letter B here is like a mixture of salvation by faith and works, right? Like I believe in God, but I also try to do his will. And I'm hoping that's enough that he'll accept me. Letter C, watch, is salvation by faith as a work. This one looks correct to people, but what they're saying is because I believed in God, that kind of makes me a good person. God looks at me and is like, thank you for believing in me. That really helped. And, and thank you for, for having warm feelings toward me. And because you believed in me, therefore, I'm going to reward you in, in, with heaven. In every single one of those cases, you've got a person who is religious, but is not somebody who has done a trust transfer. You are not talking about somebody who no longer works for their salvation. The correct answer, the only answer to the question of why God should let you into heaven is because of what Jesus has done. Somebody asked Billy Graham right before he died. They said, Billy Graham, why do you think God is going to let you into heaven? It was the last interview he ever gave before he died. And he said, and I quote, I won't be in heaven because I've preached to large crowds or because I've tried to live a good life. I will be in heaven for one reason. Many years ago, I put my faith, my confidence, I transferred my trust to Jesus Christ who died on the cross to make our forgiveness possible and rose again from the dead to give us eternal life. Billy Graham has done a lot of good works. Billy Graham in many ways has lived what we would call a good life, but he is not trusting in those things to be his entry into heaven. He is trusting on the finished work of Christ. So the one who does not work, but instead believes on him who justifies the ungodly, who declares the ungodly to be righteous. That person's faith is credited. It is logizomai as righteousness. Then Paul turns and he quotes King David in support of this. Now, this is very strategic also because in the you know, who's who list, right behind Abraham would have been David, beloved King David. And he says, King David agreed with this too. Look at it. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Right? Then he quotes from Psalm 32, one of David's Psalms. Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person whom the Lord will never charge with sin. So by the way, that word charge there is the same word in Greek, logizomai, whom the Lord will never credit with sin. Paul's use of David here is not just strategic because David was a beloved figure to Jews. It's also strategic because David was like the pinnacle of the forgiven sinner in the Old Testament. We, I actually told you this story a couple weeks ago. Remember what David had done? David had not done little small piddly sins. His varsity level sins is what David had done. Slept with his best friend's wife, got his best friend's wife pregnant when his best friend wasn't around. So to try to cover it up, he manages to get his best friend murdered so that he, David can then take his wife and bring her into his house and act like he got her pregnant after they got married and then lied about it for a year. In anybody's book, that's a varsity level sin. Nathan the prophet comes in and confronts David. When David finally confesses, Nathan looks at David and says, God told me to tell you that you will not be charged with this sin. You will be forgiven. And I told you, that's awesome. We love it. Unless you're Uri Uriah's the guy that he murdered, unless you're Uriah's mother, and then you're sitting in the courtroom and what do you say if, 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 if Uriah was your son and David just had him murdered in cold blood and stole his wife? What do you say to that? No, it's not that easy. It's not that easy. David knew that. David knew that he had done something that was worthy of death. And he said, I won't be charged with death. I won't be logizomai with death because somebody else is gonna be logizomai with death. Jesus is gonna be logizomai with death. And because he's logizomai, because he's charged with death, I'm going to be credited with his righteousness. 
Paul says, well, just like with David, our sins, which also deserve death, they were also charged to Jesus. They were legitimized to Jesus so that Jesus's life and resurrection could be legitimized, credited to us. So how was Abraham saved? He was saved by trusting God would keep his promise to bring salvation to the world the same way that you and I bring, experience salvation. And that is by trusting that God has brought salvation to the world. Question number two, when was Abraham saved? When exactly was Abraham saved? You think, well, this is just a detail. Nope, it's very important. Let me show you. Paul says, when was it credited? When was Abraham saved? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Now, I don't wanna get super deep into circumcision here. I've told you before that your campus pastor is a certified expert at circumcision. He will answer all of your questions. But um, just for right now, let it represent basically, let it, it symbolizes all of the law, all the Mosaic law. And so what, 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 what Paul is saying is when was Abraham declared righteous? Was it, was it when he, after he got circumcised, after he received the first part of the law, or was it when he was still uncircumcised? Well, he was declared righteous in Genesis 15, six. Circumcision was not even introduced until Genesis 17. So Paul says, see, it was not while he was circumcised, it was while he was still uncircumcised. And this was to make him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised who have never been under the Jewish law so that righteousness might be credited to them also. You see, the logic here goes like this. If God declared Abraham to be righteous before he was circumcised, before there was a law, then the law, circumcision, cannot be essential to salvation since Abraham was declared righteous before he ever even heard about it. Thus, the law cannot be a means of salvation. The law was not given as a means of salvation. The law, Paul explains in those verses, was given for another reason. It's what he's been saying now for three, four chapters in Romans. The law was not given to bring us salvation and make us closer to God. The law was given to reveal the holiness of God to us. It was to reveal to us how sinful we were so that we would go to God for his grace. It was to show us God's glory so that after we've been saved, it would give us a pathway for understanding how to become like the God that we love. So how was Abraham saved? He was saved by faith. When was Abraham saved? He was saved before the law was introduced. Question number three, well, what were the elements of Abraham's saving faith? And this is where Paul really begins to, to dissect faith. Let me, before I get into this, let me take a minute, just make sure you understand the story of Abraham, because if not, you might be a little, a little lost on what's going on here. Okay, the story of Abraham occurs in Genesis 12. Right before this in Genesis 11 um, is after the flood, the wickedness of man has come to a crescendo with the building of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is a gigantic tower that all of humankind built as kind of the symbol of their independence from God. Right there in the middle of the Arabian desert, it's a big old middle finger sticking up at God. And it's a brazenly defiant act. And God says, okay, I'm gonna scatter all the different people into different language groups. And he scattered them all around the globe um, and in different languages. Then God chose one family, one person. That person was Abram. He wasn't called Abraham yet. He chose one person, Abram, and said, I'm going to make of you a great nation and you're going to be my nation. And then from you is going to come a descendant who is gonna bring salvation and blessing to all the world and all of the people are going to be blessed in you. The problem was when Abram got that promise and he and his wife, the problem was when Abram got that promise, both he and his wife were in their seventies and they were childless. And they're gonna remain that way until they're in their late nineties. Still, Paul says, verse 18, Romans 4, still Abraham believed, hoping against hope. I love that phrase, hoping against hope, because when you're 90 and you hadn't had kids yet, you give up hope, right? I mean, blue pill or no pill, it ain't happening. It ain't happening. So in hoping against hope, so that he became the father of many nations, watch this, according to what had been spoken. And what had been spoken, so will your descendants be. That's just shorthand for your descendants are gonna be numerous like the stars and one of them is gonna bring salvation to the world. He believed that promise, that was the object of his faith. So if you're taking notes, letter A, faith's object is God's promise. Again, Abraham wasn't just believing in God in general. He wasn't just believing God was out there. He believed the specific thing that God had said, a promise he had made, and then Abraham adjusted his life around that promise. And from that point on, Abraham's gonna start walking around as if this promise was gonna come true. 
He adjusts his life to that new reality. So even though he's 90 and childless, he's building himself a nursery. They're picking out baby names. Uh, they're, uh, you know, throwing baby showers. They're looking for a land that's going to house this massive nation that God is going to give to him. And because, Paul says, he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was able also to do. Therefore, therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. So faith's object is the promise of God. Faith is believing that God will do what God said he'll do and then readjusting your life around the reality of that promise. Now, Paul makes the bridge to us in verse 23 because most of us have not received a promise that we're gonna have old age, when we're gonna have kids when we're 90. That's not the promise that you got. So Paul says, well, how does this apply to you? I love it, verse 23. Now it was credited to him, that phrase in Genesis 15, six, that wasn't written for Abraham alone. It wasn't an isolated incident. No, no, no. It's also for you and for me, it's for us. It'll be credited to us, just like Abraham, who believe in him, who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Why that? Verse 25, because he was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised again for our justification. Watch. The resurrection was God's proof that he had accepted Jesus as the payment for our sin. The resurrection was the declaration that it worked, right? Because when Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished, it is paid, and then he died. When God raised him from the dead, God said, he was telling the truth. And he did exactly what he said he did. He paid for your sin. So what it means for you to show faith is for you to say, I believe that God kept his promise. Just like Abraham believed God would keep his promise, I believe that he did keep his promise. That promise was that he would send salvation into the world. Abraham believed that God was gonna send it. I believe that he has sent it. You following this? Old Testament saints are saved the same way that you and me are saved. We both believe God's promise to send salvation to the world. They, believe, they believed it by looking forward to the cross. We believe by looking backwards at the cross. The direction is different. The object is the same. That is God's promise to bring salvation. It's not a general hope in God. It is a belief that God kept his word to take care of your sin debt and to remove it and to give you his righteousness. So next we have letter B. We've got faith's focus. Faith focus, Paul explains, verse 19, is God's power. It's what it focuses on. Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead, which is kind of harsh, you know, way to say that. But when you're 100 years old, when it comes to your reproductivity, you're dead, okay? Since he was about 100 years old. And also the deadness of Sarah's womb, because that was a promise too, right? There were lots of things, lots of, it was a problem too. There were lots of things that Abraham could have, have mused about as he considered his future. Lots of things that Abraham could have thought about that discouraged him, but Abraham chose not to think about any of those things. He chose instead to focus only on God's ability to keep his word. Now, I'm gonna go ahead and tell you, in case you don't know, dependent on God alone like that can be scary. But Abraham did it. Most of us, most of us prefer a faith, watch, let's be honest, where we depend on God a little bit and depend on ourselves a lot of it. That's what the kind of faith we prefer. If this promise, think about it, if this promise were made to you today, what would you do? You'd be like, oh, thank you, God. Thank you for this promise. And then you'd head right to the doctor and you'd say, okay, doctor, what kind of pills do I need? What kind of she need? What are the techniques that we do here? You'd be home on the internet typing in how to have kids when you're 90. Uh, by the way, I tried that on a Google search. It gets zero results. So I would not suggest it at all. But the point is you'd want to hedge your bet. You'd want to hedge your bet. You want God to come through. But if not, if not, you're going to figure out other ways of getting it done and making sure that you're taken care of if God doesn't come through you have what, what one of my favorite Bible teachers, Tony Evans, what he calls mutual fund faith. You know how mutual fund works? So if you're a really gutsy investor, you find one company that looks like it's gonna do awesome and you put all your money on that company. And here's the upside. If it does awesome, you get rich. The downside is if it goes broke, then you lose all the money you invested in it. So most of us cowards, we best invest in mutual funds because how's a mutual fund work? Well, you band together with a bunch of other people. I don't know how many exactly, but you say it's a thousand people. And you all invest together in a thousand different companies. And here's the upside. If one of them goes belly up, you don't lose your money because the risk is mitigated because it's spread out. One of the things can fall apart and you can still be okay. That's what we do with God. Is we're like, God, you're part of this equation, but I'm going to do other things to make sure that I am happy and that I'm taken care of because I can't risk it all on your promise. You say, well, that's a really good illustration, but I, I don't understand how, how do we do that today? Great, thanks for asking, let me, let me show you. Okay, here's a handful of ways. I'll give them to you, ready, okay? Um, you can do it by refusing to embrace your new identity. 
God has declared you totally righteous in his sight. Yet, most of you walk around with a sense of fear, insecurity, a nagging sense of guilt, a vague sense of disapproval. You'll say things like, well, I know that God has said that I'm forgiven, but I just don't think I can forgive myself. And you spend most of your life trying to prove yourself both to you and to others that you have worth. Friend, that is plain and simple, refusing to believe that God did what God said he did. Friend, according to the gospel, you are forgiven. There is literally nothing that you could do that would make God love you any more than he does right now. And there's nothing you have done that can make him love you any less because he poured out all your bad on Jesus and buried it in a grave. And he looks at you now as if you were the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it is time for you just to embrace that and to start worshiping God for it and stop trying to prove yourself. Christian, the moment that you accepted Christ, you became a chosen and adopted, a cherished son or daughter of God. He looked at you and said, well done, my good and faithful servant. You're my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. You have been appointed now to walk in victory. Even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't have to fear evil because he's standing right beside you. Uh, it means that when you are in the presence of your enemies, he's prepared a table for you and your cup's gonna overflow. It means that all your needs are gonna be provided according to the richness of Christ Jesus. Jesus, you are going to reign forever as a king or queen with Christ. Nothing can overcome you anymore. No weapon formed against you can prosper. All those who rise up against you will fall. Nothing can separate you from his love and goodness and mercy are going to follow you all the days of your life. And all these earthly trials you go through, his presence never leaves you or forsake you. And he is commandeering all of them for your good and his glory and his continued mission in the world. Is that how you walk through life right there? If not, you've hedged your bet, Okay. That's one way. Here's the second way. Um, it, it goes along with that one. Failing to face tomorrow in the confidence of God's promises. Like Abraham, there's a lot of you that feel like your past failures are going to define your future. But faith says my future is not determined by my past. My future is as bright as the promises of God. Whenever, sometimes when I'm talking to people who are considering becoming Christians, they will tell me, like, like, Pastor, I, I want to become a Christian. I just, I just don't think I can live this out. I don't think I'm strong enough to live this out. I always point out to them, I'm, I'm like, friend, when you say that, though, what are you, you're showing that your focus is on you. The Christian life is not about you doing this for Jesus. It's about Jesus doing it in and through you. Isn't that what Galatians 2.20 says? I've been crucified with Christ. I can't do anything for God. I'm worthless when it comes to accomplishing things for God. Nevertheless, I live. And it's not even I who lives anymore. It's Christ who lives in me and through me. You get that Christ in me. Many people, when they become Christians, they feel like they've got to um, now, they've got to start, they've got to start, um, they think of it like a wrestling match where they got to wrestle that evil triumvirate, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And this is the Christian life. I got to wrestle these things. I used to go along with these things. You've been my friends. Now I got to wrestle. So the Christian life is like a wrestling match. And so you're out there, you're wrestling the world, the flesh, and the devil. Let me tell you something. The world, the flesh, and the devil will whip your tail every single time, okay? And so what happens after a few weeks, man, they're just like, they're about to die spiritually. And they're, uh, they're like, I can't do this. I'm going to give up. And then they come to church and they hear me say something about God's power or something like that. And they're like, that's it. I forgot. God needs to come help me. And so they reach up and just as they, they're about to, to get you know, pinned, about to get counted out, they reach up and they, they smack the hand of Jesus, they tag him in and Jesus comes off the top rope with like a rack attack or whatever they call it. And just boom, just takes out the world, the flesh and the devil. And you drag over and you sit in the side and for several minutes, Jesus just whips around the world, the flesh and the devil and he gets them back in their place. And after you've caught your breath and you're recovered, Jesus tags you back in and says, all right, champ, get back out there. And so you go back out there and you go through it again. And this is the Christian life. It's you and then Jesus and then you and then Jesus. Now that's better than you for Jesus. But the Christian life is not you for Jesus. It's also not you and Jesus. The Christian life is Jesus in you. And it means that you stay in a ring the whole time, but it's never your power, it's his. So you're kind of going through the motions of fighting, but it's his power that is working in your marriage. It's his power at work in your parenting. It's his power at work when I'm preaching. I'm the one who's doing it, but it's his power in me. Does that make sense? I think of it like this, um, I, uh, or I think of it like this. A couple of weeks ago, I was with my family on a little vacation. And uh, the place where we were had a lake with some paddle boats in it. So my nine-year-old son says, let's go paddle boating. So we get in the paddle boats and of course, you know, his little legs are, are just barely long enough to touch the pedals, okay? So he's not putting any energy into those pedals, right? So, but we're out there in the lake. He's like, dad, let's go this side. Now, dad, let's pedal that side. Let's go this side. Let's go back to that side where we were. And finally, I was like, son, let's stop saying let's, okay? Because there ain't no let's in this equation. There's dad doing this and dad's tired of going back and forth across the lake. 
Even though his legs are going through the motions, it's all my strength and my power. The same thing is happening in the Christian life, right? It's you are doing it, but God is doing it in you and through you. It's his power. So I'm facing the Christian life and saying not, what do I have to do? I'm embracing it with the confidence that comes from God and saying, yeah, my marriage looks difficult, but God is able to, 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 to work what he wants in it. This situation is impossible, but all things are possible with God. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So we refuse to walk forward in the confidence. Here's a, a third way we hedge our bet. We refuse to obey fully, right? You're like, okay, God, I wanna do it your way, but I'm gonna have some other things over here just in case, just in case, just in case this is not true. I'm gonna make sure that I'm still, still happy and secure. Um, you know, Paul, the apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, he said, if the gospel's not true, then I'm a fool. He said, because the choices that I've made the sacrifices that I've made, if this turns out not to be true and God turns out not to keep his promises, then I am of all men to be pitied because I have staked it all on whether or not God is gonna keep his promise. For most of us, we wouldn't quite be there. We'd say, I hope God is gonna keep his promise, but I'm also kind of living in ways that I'll be happy and secure even if he's not there. And be honest, right? Let me tell you what that looks like. And this is gonna get really personal, but you asked for it, okay? I mean, literally, you asked the question. So um, the, the first one, um, for example, if you're dating, what this looks like is, I want God to be a part of my life, but I'm not willing to wait on the one that is the choice from God to date. Because yes, I want God to be a part of my life, but I also feel like I need, I need romance and I need a boyfriend or girlfriend to be happy. So I'm going to compromise my standards and just date whoever I want to and not wait for the one that's from God because if God doesn't come through, I'm gonna make sure that I'm taken care of. Right? You don't want God out of your life, but you also are going to not obey him fully and not actually going to trust him. Or how about this? Uh, we have dating couples, engaged couples in this church, which is something I do not like to say this, admit this, but it's true, who are listening to me right now who are living together before marriage. What that means is we're in church, we want God to be a part of our life, but we don't trust God enough to actually do it his way. And then they'll say to me like this, oh, pastor, do you feel like God's gonna, is he gonna judge us for living together? I'm like, so you're scared of the wrath of God, but you won't submit to the wisdom of God. Tell me how that equation works. He, he either is God or he's not. And if he is God, then do it his way. Don't hedge your bet, just do what he tells you to do and obey him fully. Um, if you're married, if you're married, here's what it looks like. It looks like my marriage isn't going well. And rather than trusting that God is gonna do a miracle in you as you stick at it and whether trusting God that he's gonna help overcome these obstacles, you look for an easy way out called a divorce, right? Or you just, you know, kind of, well, or maybe you seek romance outside of your marriage, right? And you're like, I just, I can't, I've gotta do it my way as well. If you're a teenager or a college student, it means you wanna to belong to Jesus. You don't want Jesus to be out of your life, but you also, you also wanna do it your way and you don't trust him enough to fully surrender. So I've told you, you keep one foot in the world and one foot on Jesus, right? And I'm like, but it, it's, like a, it's like a boat at a dock and that boat is pulling away. Jesus is pulling away from the world. And at some point you gotta decide because that's the worst position to be in is one foot on the dock and one foot on the boat. That don't work out well for nobody, okay? And so you gotta choose. I'm either on the dock or I'm either in Jesus. If you're gonna trust him, don't hedge your bed, just go all the way. The most miserable people in the world are half committed Christians. Many of you are, are doing it, I would say in your career, this doesn't apply to everybody, but God, God has told some of you that he wants you to use your career on a, um, whether it's a church plan or, or, or somewhere, you know, where you can be a part of the mission of God. And you don't have an immoral career. You're doing good, right? You're doing well in your career, but you don't trust God enough to obey him about where he said to use that career. And so while your career is not immoral, you have hedged your bet. Some of you do it, it's like a real personal. Some of you, a lot of you do it in relation to this church. And what I mean is you want to have churches as a part of your life. So you're, you know, you're a part of the church, which means you come two out of five Sundays, which, you know, to you feels like a lot. And then, but you're not going to join. You're not going to join and you're not going to get committed because that gets, just gets messy and I don't want to be encumbered. You see what you're doing? Jesus clearly says, God clearly says you should belong to the body. But what you want to do is you want just enough of God to kind of stay in it, but you also want to remain separated from it so that you can hedge your bet. Many of us hedge our faith when it comes to our finances. This is a huge area. Back in first, we saw that this is the end of last year. We saw that God wants the first and the best of what he gives us. But because we know, we were like, well, money is essential for my happiness and money is also essential for my security. So I can't do that. 
So you come to church and occasionally you'll throw in your lunch money into the offering plate when it goes by, but, but you've never actually made God first and best in your giving. You've never given him the place where he says to start the tithe because you don't really trust him enough to go all the way. You've got a mutual fund faith and it's time for a single focus faith. Whenever your focus goes from God to you, you will always hedge your bet. Now, verses 20 and 21, we see letter C, faith boasts. Faith boasts is God's trustworthiness and ability. Paul says, Abraham did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but he was strengthened in his faith and he gave glory to God because Abraham was fully convinced of what God had promised, he was also able to do. You know, a big theme for Paul in Romans, have you noticed this, is what you boast in. If you're saved by works, Paul says, you can boast about what you've accomplished. But if you're saved by faith, you can't boast about what you've accomplished because your boast is in what God accomplished for you. If Abraham had had kids in his own strength when he was 90, Abraham will be walking around heaven going, I'm mega man. That's right. When I was 90 years old, the old boy still had it. I fathered a nation when I was 90. But as it stands now, when you meet Abraham, he's going to be like, I wasn't no mega man. I was a miserable failure at 30. At 30, I was a miserable failure and God did it all. So God gets the glory. If one ounce of your salvation came from your own strength, when you get to heaven, we're not, we're all we're going to hear about is how you overcame the odds to get to heaven. But as it is, what do we sing? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. By the way, that's a brightness that doesn't come from our glory. It comes from his glory in us. Bright shining as the sun. Even after 10,000 years, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. What that means is after 10,000 years, I'm still not gonna have gotten to the subject of how awesome JD is. I'm still gonna be talking about the glory of Jesus because my boast is gonna be not in my righteousness, but his grace. We're not gonna walk around in heaven with those stupid Nike shirts on that say things like I'm a beast and fear me and I am awesome. In fact, Revelation 22:4 says that we're gonna have his name literally tattooed to our forehead. If you don't like tattoos, you should go ahead and get used to it because you're gonna have one in heaven. And it's gonna say, Revelation 22:4. it's gonna say his name and his grace because there our boast is in who he is, not what we have done. That is faith's boast. Letter D, faith's feebleness. This might be my favorite point of the whole thing. Verse 20. When we read verse 20 a minute ago and you saw that phrase, um, did not waver in unbelief. For some of you, if you know the story of Abraham, that kind of strikes you as an odd phrase, does it not? Did not waver in unbelief. Do you know the story of Abraham? He wavered all over the place, didn't he? I mean, think about it. Um, Not once, not once, but twice, Abraham lied to another king about Sarah not being his wife because the king was interested in her and trying to hit on her. What kind of dirt bag does that? Not once, but twice. What's that, what does that even look like today? Like some guy in a restaurant's like, hey, who's that hot girl? I'm like, instead of saying, that's my wife, I'm like, I don't know, man, you should ask her for a number because I don't want the guy to beat me up. Right? Abraham does that twice because he wavers in his confidence that God's gonna take care of him. Um, Genesis 16, uh, right, you know, it's obviously one chapter later than Genesis 15 where he believed Genesis 16, he sleeps with his housekeeper, Hagar, because he thinks that Sarah is too old now to have a kid. So Abraham might as well help the process along by sleeping with, with Hagar. That sounds like wavering to me. So despite all of that, why would Paul say that Abraham did not waver in, uh, did he not know that? Had he forgotten it? No, he knew it better than you know it. He's, watch this. He did not waver in unbelief because Paul understands that Wavering and unbelief has less to do with never falling. It has more to do with the place that you look after you fall. That after you have wavered and stumbled, you get up with confidence in God's grace and his ability to keep his promise. And that's what Abraham did every single time. By the way, Abraham is that guy that I've told you all about in Proverbs 24. This is one of my favorite like illustrations to you, Proverbs 24, 16, where it says that the righteous man falls seven times. And I've told you, remember, I've said like, imagine being behind a guy who fell seven times. What is that? Imagine if it happened up here. You know, the lights come on for preaching, you know, worship guys walking off and I'm like, hey, you know, like this, right? (laughs) By the way, I didn't tell the, um, I didn't tell him in the first service I was doing that. And so it just, the camera stayed up there and just thud, nothing on the screen. (laughs) All right, what happened? What happens if I fall like that? What happens is a bunch of y'all laugh, a bunch of y'all feel bad about laughing. And you're like, Lord Jesus, I don't want to laugh, but that was funny. Um, and so can I laugh about this? And I stand up, I'm kind of embarrassed. <laughs> I'm clumsy, you know, I make some joke about tripping on the carpet or whatever. Like, and we move on, right? It's done. Right? It just happens to everybody at least once in their lifetime. You fall in front of people. And at some point it'll happen here to me, I'm, I'm sure. But after, about being up here for, after being up here for about two minutes, I fall again. 
And then I fall a third time. And then before I hit minute 15, I'm on number six. By the time I stand up, there are EMT up here. Because you're like, this dude has got a problem. He's not just clumsy, he's got a problem. (laughs) The writer of the book of Proverbs says, the righteous man falls seven times. All he does is fall. That's Abraham. He falls seven times. How does the righteous fall seven times? Because your righteousness is not shown by never falling. Your righteousness is shown by where you look after you fall. And every time Abraham fell, he was like, I messed up again. I messed up again. But Lord, your promise is secure. Your promise is true. And thank God this promise is not conditioned on my continued faithfulness. Your promise is secure because your promise depends on you. So my faith is feeble, but the object of my faith is secure. Though my faith is wavering, the object is solid. And so Paul says he didn't waver in unbelief because even though he fell and fell and fell, he kept getting up and looking at the promise of God. I don't know about you, but that brings me a lot of comfort because it means that just because I don't have flawless, unflinching faith doesn't mean that I am not regarded as God by righteous because I know the object of my faith is secure, which leads me to the last thing, letter E. This is the best faith result, faith result. And it is amazing. Therefore, he says it was credited to him for righteousness. It was credited to him for righteousness, though he wasn't righteous, though he faltered all the time. He, he was regarded as righteous. Now, that phrase, it was credited to him. That wasn't written for just Abraham. No, friend, it was written for you. It'll be credited to you when you believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord up from the dead because you see, he was delivered up for our trespasses. He said, it is finished. And then he was raised again for our justification. He was raised again, showing that God had accomplished what God said he was going to accomplish. Faith is merely the hand that lays hold of the finished work of Christ. Faith is the admission that you cannot save yourself. Therefore, God did it all for you. It is the declaration that though you are faithless, he is faithful. Though you are powerless, he is powerful. That though you are unrighteous, God is gracious that he is faithful and just in all of his ways, though you are crooked and deceiving in all of yours. By the way, this faith, this faith is what will propel you outward into the mission of God. As I was reading Romans four over and over again this week, one of the things that stood out to me I'd never seen before is how Paul, every time he brings us up, can't help himself, but he, he always says like, and this is not just for us, this is also for the nations. We gotta, this is why I'm going to the nations because God wanted to save people everywhere, not just me. When you really believe this, what you'll start to develop is this confidence that God wants to save the people around you. And you'll start to go and you'll start to share. And for some of you, it's gonna drive you to Muslim nations or peoples in the world that have never heard the gospel because you're gonna be convinced that God wants to save them too. It's what he promised. And the same God that brought Jesus out of the grave is gonna fulfill this part of the promise too. Therefore, I'll walk across the street and tell my neighbor who seems hardened to Christianity, I'll walk across the street and I'll share Christ with them because the God that brought Jesus out of the grave can soften that person's heart. And the God that brought Jesus out of the grave is going to not let history end until there's a thriving church movement in every single people group on earth. And so that's why we've got 258 of our members right now that are living overseas somewhere that are there because they believe this promise that though the challenge seems impossible, the God that gave a nation to a hundred year old man and the God that brought Jesus out of the grave is the God that is gonna finish his work in the world. Therefore, I will share with my neighbor. Therefore, I will go on mission trips and I will go live overseas if that's what God asks because I'm believing that he will accomplish that promise. The Christian life, friend, it is begun, it is sustained, it is completed by faith. Question is, have you ever made that faith commitment? Have you ever exercised that faith? What I hope you see is that faith is not a general belief in God. It's not warm feelings about God. It's not a feeling. Faith is not a flawless life. Faith is the decision that God has told the truth about accomplishing your salvation and resting the weight of your soul on that promise. I told you it was like a chair. It was like a chair, a trust transfer. You can only be in one of two relationships to this chair. Most of you that I'm looking at right now, you're sitting down, which means you've transferred your trust off of your legs to that thing. You can only be in one of two relationships, friend of Jesus Christ, only one of two. You're either standing, believing in him, but standing, hoping that you're gonna be good enough to be accepted by God and earn your way into heaven, or you have sat down and trust that 
He did what he said he did, and he's accomplished it all. You're either standing right now in control of your own life, or you have sat down in full submission to him and said, you're the Lord, I belong to you. I know a number of you are like, well, I can't remember when I prayed the prayer, and I don't know if I was sorry enough for my sin. I'm always like, y'all listen, the prayer is totally irrelevant. You understand that? Totally irrelevant. Right? The point is, are you trusting in Jesus? I mean, it's like I've told you, like, you know, if I look at the chair, if you can, if you, if you said a little prayer to the chair before you sat down, I, I'm not going to judge you. If you were like, oh, chair, thou art a lovely chair, I want thou to be my eternal chair from now and henceforth. And for, if you said that, fine, you know, whatever. But I don't really care if you said anything to the chair. I care whether you sat down in the chair. I don't care what you said to Jesus. The point is, did you surrender to him and begin to trust in his finished work is yours? Faith is just the hand that lays the head on Jesus and said he did what he said he did. And I'm going to rest all my hopes on that. That faith is credited as righteousness. Have you ever laid your hand on the finished work of Christ and embraced it as your own? Why don't we bow every head here, every eye at every campus. Let's close them. Have you ever accepted Christ for yourself? Have you ever embraced his finished work as yours? If not, you could do that right now, listen, and you could express it in a prayer. It's not the prayer that saves, it's the posture depicted in the prayer that saves. That prayer would sound like this, Jesus, I believe you did what you said you did. I believe you paid for all my sin. I trust it now. I rest on it as my hope of heaven. Jesus, you're the Lord. You are. I surrender to you. Let me ask with every head bowed and every eye closed. If you prayed that prayer with me right now, for the first time or for the first time that you really understand it, you just lift your hand up and just say, that was me today. For the first time or the first time I understand it, I prayed that prayer and I am transferring my trust and my hopes to Jesus' finished work. If that's you, raise your hand up really high right now. Father, I pray for every hand that is raised, the ones I can see, the ones I cannot see, the ones that have prayed previous services. God, give them courage to exercise faith tomorrow and again the next day and walk the walk of faith for the rest of their life. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can put your hands down. If you prayed that prayer, I only have one request for you. And that is that you tell somebody before you leave. That could be the person that invited you. If you don't know the person that invited you, you came by yourself, one of our prayer teams down front at the end of the service, one of our pastors, um, we would love to talk to you, but tell somebody before you leave so that we can show you the steps you ought to take from here, okay? We're gonna end this thing. We're gonna end it at all campuses by worshiping and thinking about the lavish grace of God that's been given to us in Christ. So at all campuses, why don't you stand to your feet and let's declare, let's declare our hope, our trust in God for his grace.